Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, I appreciate both of the prayers tonight because they emphasize what our passage is about, and that is being receptive and hearing the Word of God. If you would, take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study there in chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and we'll give our attention to verses 1 through 20, a text that naturally raises the question, do you have ears that hear? Mark chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 20. And uh, I'll read verse 1 through verse 9 in preparation for our study of the 20 verses. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat (coughs) and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold. And a hundredfold, and he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As I was looking at this particular text, which emphasizes so much the importance of the ear, I began to ask the question, how often does the Bible refer to different parts of the body to make a point about spiritual life and uh, to communicate to us spiritual principles? And I discovered uh, it actually does it quite a lot, and I've noted those for you. Let me read the verses as you look at the different uh, uh, aspects of the human body that the Bible utilizes. Feet, Romans 10:15, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And, of course, he's not saying they've got really pretty feet uh, that have nice manicured toenails and not high arches or any of that kind of stuff. I have, by the way, both extremely high arches and horrible-looking toenails. But I think the Lord would say, if I am taking the gospel uh, to Turkey, to Moldova, uh, to Liberia, uh, to uh, Thailand, uh, I've got good feet. I've got beautiful feet. That's the only context in which I would be said to have beautiful feet. He's not talking about the literal feet, but the fact that we go and take the gospel to those who need to hear. Number two, hands and knees. Listen to Hebrews 12, 12 through 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And if you go right back before those verses, uh, you have a whole discourse on the importance of discipline. 
and the fact that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And if you be without discipline, then you're illegitimate and not a true child. And so God disciplines us so that spiritually speaking, we will have strong hands, strong knees, and even again, feet that walk the path correctly. Oh, the tongue, James 3, 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. The eyes, Matthew 6, 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, that is, you're receiving in revelation and receiving in truth from God, your whole body will be full of light. Your hair. Yes, I know that mine's a lot shorter right now. And somebody said, am I going through a midlife crisis? No. If, if I am, I don't know it. Uh, did your wife like it? Oh, no. Oh, my soul. I came home and she looked at me last week and her bottom lip literally started quivering. And she said, what, 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 what did you do to your hair? And I said, well, I got it cut. And she said, but you didn't have much anyway. And I said, well, Brother Bill's my hero, and I want to have hair like Brother Bill. And so I've made a good start, but there's more that will need to be done, of course. But when he says in Matthew 10:30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered, he's not talking about the importance of the hair on your head. He's talking about the fact that God in his sovereignty is intimately aware of every single aspect of your life. The heart, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And he's not talking about this thing beating right here. He's talking about who I am on the inside. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. But it's not surprising that perhaps the most important anatomical uh, device that we find in the Bible... Uh, is actually that of the ear, because the Christian faith is a faith of the Word. And so if it is indeed a faith that is grounded in the Word, then perhaps nothing is more important to our spiritual health and spiritual vitality than is our ears. Hence, Mark 4, 9, Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so our particular text is about uh, your ears and it's about my ears. It's how they listen to and hear and receive spiritual truth. Now keep this in mind as we walk through this parable. Uh, this particular text is about those who go to church. They may even come on Wednesday nights. This text is about people that attend Bible studies. Uh, this text is about people who do hear the word and who do hear the gospel, and then the question is, what do they do with what they actually hear? This is not talking about unreached people groups. This is not talking about people who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. No, this is talking about people who get a clear presentation of the gospel and the Word of God. And what you discover is this. Just like James tells us that there is a spiritual connection uh, between the heart and the tongue, Jesus is telling us here in Mark 4 that there's also a spiritual connection between the heart and the ear. Those spiritual organs, if I might use that metaphor, are intimately connected together. And so it's not surprising that Jesus says in verse 3, listen. He says in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. 
In verse 12, he speaks of those who may indeed hear, but not understand. And then finally, in a positive note, he says in verse 20, he speaks of those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. And so the question all of us need to ask ourselves this evening is simply this. Do I have ears that hear? And so there's three observations I want to make from this text. And actually what we'll do is we'll look at the uh, the parable itself. We'll then look at an interlude where he kind of gives us a word of insight about the parables. And then Jesus will provide his own explanation of the parables in, uh, in the parable in verse 13 through verse 20. So the first thing he says in the first nine verses, the verses I read earlier, is we must sow the seed of the gospel that people might hear the word. The text begins by saying in verse 1 of chapter 4, and he began to teach beside the sea. So again, Jesus is beside the sea. And furthermore, a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside on the sea on the land. So Jesus is beside the sea again. A big crowd is with him again. In fact, this time it is so large, he does a very interesting thing. He gets off of the land and he gets into a boat and moves back a little bit for perhaps a number of reasons. One, to have some needed space. Two, to add amplification across the water to his voice, which would have naturally occurred. And then perhaps thirdly, in getting some space, he sits down and he teaches in the normal pattern and the normal habit of a rabbi in that particular day and time. It was not the custom to stand up behind a lectern or a pulpit and to teach the word of God, but rather they would sit. And even if they were outside the synagogue, normally they would sit and teach the people in that kind of setting. And so the text says in verse 2, he taught them many things in parables. Now, this is interesting. Mark chapter 4, verse 1 through 34, which consists of four parables, is the largest and longest teaching section in the gospel of Mark, with the exception of Mark chapter 13, where he gives his discourse about the future. So Mark is a gospel that is far more committed to his actions than his teachings. And yet, even though that is indeed the case, Mark 4 and Mark 13 comprise two very long and lengthy sections of teaching. Now, it says there in verse 2, he was teaching them many things, and he was doing so in parables, and this is what he was doing as he taught them. Now, we do understand that parables were perhaps the favorite means of teaching that we find in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the most striking feature of his teaching as well. Uh, Maybe you were taught like I was that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that particular statement is helpful, but I think it needs to be added to. It needs to be amplified a little bit more. And so when we think of Jesus teaching in parables, I think there are a number of observations that we can make as to why and exactly what did the parables accomplish uh, in his teaching ministry. And so I've got them listed there for you. We'll just note them very quickly. Number one, uh, parables provide insight into the nature, the coming the growth and the consummation of the kingdom of God. In fact, sometimes they're called the parables of the kingdom. And that would be a very accurate designation because these parables are telling us how the kingdom comes, which is a surprising way, by the the way. Secondly, how the kingdom grows and how the kingdom will be consummated. Secondly, 
Parables are by design intended to be provocative and surprising. In fact, they're designed in many ways to sneak up on us. They, they come in the back door and catch us by surprise because if we saw it coming, we'd put up a defense to prevent uh, hearing what he's going to say. But before we know it, my goodness, he's got us by the throat. It's sort of like the parable that, that Nathan told David uh, with respect to the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And he tells the story of a little uh, ewe lamb that was owned by one farmer. And the guy next door had a big herd of, uh, of sheep. And yet he wanted to have that one, too. And he says, well, what do you think should happen to such a man that has all these sheep and steals the only one he has? And David says, such a man ought to die. And then, boom. You are the man. Well, sometimes in the parables that we will study in this chapter and some that we see elsewhere in the Bible, all of a sudden we realize, my goodness, he's talking about me. I'm the guilty party in this particular parable. So they often surprise us and and sneak up on us, and that is their intention. Number three. Parables are used to stimulate thinking and cause the hearer to carefully contemplate what they're hearing. In other words, you can't just give it a superficial hearing. You have to concentrate it and pay attention if you're going to grasp what is going on. Number four, parables use everyday objects, uh, events, and circumstances to illustrate spiritual truth. In other words, he uses things that everybody would recognize that were common uh, to their day, but he will give it a new turn. Or a new twist so that they suddenly see this everyday occurrence in a different kind of light. Now, I'd put a star or a mark of some sort, an X, by, by number five. Parables reveal more truth to those with receptive ears, and it hides truth from those with dull ears. Now, that is so vitally important. It reveals more truth to those with receptive ears. And it hides truth from those with dull ears. And this will help us understand in just a moment, verses 10, 11, and 12. Number six, parables comprise almost 35% of all the gospel teaching. And so no wonder the text says that he taught them many things in parables. Number seven, parables usually, but not always, focus on a single truth. And therefore, we should not allegorize them seeking a meaning for every detail. Now, sometimes there'll be more than one main truth, but seldom are there multiple. And we don't want to allegorize parables uh, where we give a, a meaning to every detail and every incident, but rather we're looking at the main thrust of what he is trying to say. And then number eight, ultimately, parables draw attention to Jesus as God's Messiah, and they call us to make a personal decision concerning him. In other words, we're going to move toward him and we'll get more teaching or we're going to pull back and we'll get less teaching. Or to say it another way, actually say it the way the Bible does, we pull back and we lose what we actually had. He gives us something, but for whatever reason, we don't value it. And as a result of that, we even lose what we had. And so the parables bring us to a point of decision and will not let us walk away without deciding either for him or against him. Now, the parable that we're looking at tonight, verses 3 through 8, is often called the parable of the sower. But I think a better designation is the parable of the soils because there are 
four different types of soils that Jesus is going to make reference to as he unfolds and shares this uh, particular story with us. And it's one that requires some attention. It's one that could be misunderstood. And so both in verse 3 and again in verse 9, he challenges us to pay attention. In other words, it's absolutely essential that we are alert and that we have hungry minds and hungry hearts for what he is trying to say. Now, one more thing before we jump back into it. The background of these parables is what is called broadcast sowing. Broadcast sowing. And here's the main point. They would sow the seed first. Then they would plow the ground. That's why you don't really know until the ground is plowed what kind of soil you have. And so they would go out and they would just cast the seed uh, randomly and uh, extensively. And I even use the word in my notes, promiscuously. And then they come back in and plow it up. And then depending upon the kind of soil that the seed falls into will determine what kind of response that you have. And so the seed is sown first. And then following the sowing of the seed would come the plowing of it. And so in many ways, as the parable begins, the focus really does fall upon the act of sowing. In other words, if you don't sow the seed, it's not going to matter. There's not going to be any fruit. There's not going to be any harvest. And so we've got to be busy sowing the seed. Now, his point is this. As we sow the seed... In the world around us, it is going to receive various responses. It is going to have various responses depending upon the various places where it falls. And this is God's plan for the kingdom. Surprise, surprise, surprise. His kingdom is not going to come in in some grand apocalyptic cosmic display, but rather his kingdom, and we'll see this more clearly next week, the kingdom is going to come in kind of quietly, uh, kind of in a dull fashion. I mean, what's what's exciting about a farmer going out throwing seed? And the answer is not much. Well, not much initially. But when the harvest comes, it's a completely different story. And so keep in mind that this is teaching us that there is a sense in which the kingdom has already come with the coming of the sower, who is Jesus, and the casting of the seed, which is the gospel, but we have yet to see the full fruition and harvest of the sowing of that seed. And so when you come to verses 4 through 8, you actually come to the parable itself. And what we see is there are four different types of soil that has seed sown on it. Look at it again with me there in verse 4. And he sowed, and some seed fell along the path. Verse 5, other seed fell on rocky ground. Verse 7, other seed fell along thorns. And finally in verse 8, other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain. And so one component of this parable that must not be missed is that we must sow the seed of the gospel. If we don't sow... People will not hear and people cannot respond. As he says, Paul, in Romans 10, 17, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they believe if they do not hear? And so our assignment is to sow the seed. Our assignment is to sow the seed here, sow the seed there, sow the seed everywhere. It is not our responsibility to determine how people will respond. It's not even our responsibility to bring the fruit. That's God's job. 
That's what God does. We simply are obedient to sow the seed, and God is, uh, is true to his word, that his word, the sowing of the seed, will not return void. And so Jesus lays out this parable, and then he says in verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, the wonderful New Testament scholar Mule says it this way, Now, think that one out for yourself, if you can. And so the first thing I want us to see is we must sow the seed of the gospel that people might hear the word. Now, number two, verses 10 through 12. If we do not listen to the word, we will not benefit from the gospel. Verse 10 says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. For those outside, everything is in parables so that, and this is what some New Testament scholars call one of the hard sayings of Jesus, and he's simply quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be Forgiven. Verses 10 through 12 are something of an interlude between the telling of the parable, verses 3 through 9, and the explanation of the parable, verses 14 through 20. The text tells us there are two groups there, both the 12 and those who gather around him who in particular want to know more. They want to know, one, why do you speak in parables? And two, what is the purpose for your speaking in parables? And so he gives us this hard saying that, that does require careful forethought, careful examination, careful reflection. And let me quickly add, and when I teach Bible interpretation at the seminary, as do my colleagues, we will always tell our students, context is king. Look around these particular verses for clues that might help you in understanding what he is saying. And not, no, no text it is the context more crucial than these particular verses. So Jesus says there in verse 12, basically this. Those who want more of him and his teaching, they'll get it. And they will indeed be granted access and insight into the secret of the kingdom of God, how it has come, how it is going to grow, and how it is ultimately going to reach its consummation. So if you are one of his disciples, if you are following him, if you are drawing near to him, if you're saying to the Lord, look, I don't necessarily get exactly what you're saying, but I'm not walking away. I, with a bulldog determination, am going to stay with you and follow you until I understand exactly what you're saying so that I can be obedient to your word in my life. And so the Bible says if you are indeed wired that way like these, he will explain his word. He will give you insight and understanding to his word. But in contrast, those on the outside will get no explanation. In fact, he says all they get is more 
parables. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 through verse 10 to basically demonstrate his point and also to demonstrate that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy of Isaiah there in chapter 6. Now you say, all right, Danny, so what do you think exactly he means by this saying, they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. I'll use a very popular analogy. The sun that melts the wax is also the same sun that hardens the clay. And the issue is, what kind of heart do you have? When it comes to the Word of God, do you have a heart like wax that just melts under the joy of that teaching? Or do you have a heart like clay that just gets harder and harder and harder and harder and more resistant, more resistant, more resistant, more resistant? One of the great tragedies of my life has been to share the gospel with someone who's just on the, I mean, they're just there. I mean, you're, you're just certain that they're going to believe. But for whatever reason, they say, well, not today. And so you go back, and by God's grace, sometimes you go back and they say, I'm ready. But other times you go back, and they're not only not ready, they're a little more distant. But yeah, I just don't know. I mean, uh, you're telling me that I go to heaven on the basis of a first century homeless Jew hanging on a cross? Are you kidding me? That's about the stupidest thing I ever heard. The next time you go, there's even more cynicism. The next time you go, there's skepticism. And then the next time you go, they say, look, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm not interested. Maybe that's good for you. I don't need it. And all of a sudden, they are harder than they were at the beginning. And so the Bible is simply telling us that the sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. It is telling us that the words of the gospel harden and blind the resistant and the rebellious while it is enthusiastically received by those who have receptive hearts. Now, don't miss what he's saying. He is not saying that those outside and those who resist are denied the possibility of belief. He is saying, though, if they persist in their unbelief, then they will not receive any more. And isn't it interesting? We just read uh, in the previous chapter about this thing called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit is indeed demonstrating and proving that Jesus does what he does through the ministry of the Spirit. And instead of receiving it, the religious leaders get harder and harder and harder. And he never says they actually commit it, but he says, you're on the verge of doing this. You've been exposed to the truth. You've seen it with your own eyes, heard it with your own ears. And because you say no, you don't stay neutral to it. You either move toward it or you begin to move away from it. And so that is now why verse 25, another hard saying of Jesus, finally makes sense, doesn't it? For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You say, well, that's not very fair. Context, context, context. God gives you his revelation. You receive it and welcome it. He'll give you more. God gives you his revelation. You resist it and reject it. He'll snatch that away from you and you'll wind up having nothing. That is the context of that very hard saying. To say it one more time and we'll move on. Love the word and you'll get more. Refuse the word, and even what you have will be taken away. 
And so God's program for the kingdom is one of seed sowing. It has come because the seed has been broadcast through the preaching of the gospel and the coming of the Messiah. It is going to continue to be growing and maturing and reaching fruition. And ultimately, as we learn, the gospel is going to be spread all around the world. And when Christ comes again and it reaches its full maturation, then the kingdom comes in all of its glory and all of its fullness. But right now, it's still in the growing stage. And so the question is, do you have ears that hear? Which then leads us to our third observation. The fruitfulness of the seed of the gospel does depend upon the receptivity of the hearer. Look at verse 13. Now he said to them, do you not understand this parable? And then a follow-up question. How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, Jesus kind of begins with a twofold question. It has a mild uh, rebuke or a, a mild chiding in it. And I think it does demonstrate what some New Testament scholars have said, and that is this. Of all the parables that Jesus told, this one's foundational. This one is perhaps the most important. You get this one, and the other ones tend to fall into place and make sense. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you don't get this one, you won't get the other ones. If you can't get this most simple basic, fundamental parable, you're going to really struggle mightily to get the other ones. I was thinking in the area of mathematics. It would almost be like saying it like this way. Uh, if you can't add and subtract, uh, there's little hope that you'll be able to multiply and divide. And if you can't add and subtract, there's no possibility of you doing geometry, trigonometry, and calculus. It's not even on the radar screen. So the first thing you've got to do is get your addition and your subtraction down. And if you do that, then you're prepared and you have a foundation for moving to multiplication and division and so on. And so this is what Jesus is saying. You've got to get this one or the other one simply will not make sense. So what does he do? Praise God. He explains for us very quickly the four soils where the seed has been sown. And here's what he tells us. Number one, the soil of some hearts is hard. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. So we know what the seed is. The seed is the word of God. The sower, I think, initially is Jesus, but I think the parable would indicate the sower is anyone who shares the word of God. All right. So the sower sows the word. Verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear it, Satan immediately, you'll see the word immediately occur three times in the next uh, several verses. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so Jesus says, sow the word, and there's going to be one group that will receive it like hard-hearted, tough-minded individuals. It falls on the path. As soon as they get it, and back in verse 4, he used the analogy of the bird, so Satan's the bird. Satan swoops in and snatches away so that these people are really nothing more than bird food, and they do not receive to any real extent the Word of God. In other words, their hearing is at best superficial. Uh, they are immediately resistant to what they hear. For the most part, they are totally unresponsive. Uh, Mark Dever, my good friend, says they are possessed or they are afflicted with gospel deafness. Gospel deafness. Like skeptics, they quickly dismiss the word without giving it even careful consideration. That they hear it and they immediately say no. Now, again... 
You say, well, these are people out there in the world. No, these are people who come to church. These are some people who are a part of the Sunday morning crowd. I've seen them all my life. I can remember being at a church in Dallas. And there was an older man that came and he said every single Sunday in a particular chair, because right behind that chair was a pillar that held the auditorium up. And as soon as my pastor got up to preach the word, oh, he listened for about 30 seconds. And I mean, boom, gone. Now, that was one of the more obvious examples of this. But there are others. I watched them. And they're doing this. Or they're there and they've got that just real dull look on their face because they've also got dull ears. So don't think that well, he's talking about lost people out there in the world. No, he's talking about lost people who come to church, go to Sunday school, attend a Bible study, and hear the gospel. He could even be talking about people who come on Wednesday nights. And so they hear the word. The book closes, the service ends, and so does their ears, and so does their heart. They are hardened to the gospel for whatever reason. These are people who are hardened to the word. Secondly, the soil of some hearts is shallow, verse 16, second group. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy and They have no root in themselves. So they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises, and don't miss the next phrase, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. He characterizes these uh, of the rocky soil or the rocky ground. He says, well, number one, they hear it. Two, immediately they receive it with joy. But three, they have no roots. Therefore, fourthly, they endure for a while. And then here comes tribulation and persecution over the word. And immediately they fall away. Now, this particular group sprouts quickly. And actually, of the four soils, they look the most promising because they come up so quickly. And so they're so visible while the others are still in the ground. And yet the Bible says they, they're shallow. They, they have no roots. And so going back to verse 6, when the scorching sun comes in, they wither and they die. To say it in a colloquial way, these are those who are here today and gone tomorrow. Oh, it grows fast and it dies quickly. Quickly green, quickly gone. These are those who are eager responders. These are they who, during a revival meeting, when the evangelist turns up the heat and puts on the pressure, they'll pray the sinner's prayer. They'll raise that hand. They may even come down the aisle and even weep and and shed a tear or two. And everybody thinks, this is glorious, this is great, this is fantastic, this is wonderful. But what they've done is said a quick yes without considering all that is involved. And the moment difficulty arises... What does he say in the text? When, when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, they immediately fall away. So as a result of some opposition, they, they can't stay with it. And so when opposition comes, though they made a great start, <clears throat> they do not finish. 
To say it one more way, lightly come, lightly go. And I'm convinced that like the first group, this group is not authentic when it comes to having been converted and becoming disciples of Jesus. That leads to the third group, the soul of some hearts, is distracted, verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But three things. Number one, the cares of the world. Number two, the deceitfulness of riches. And number three, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And by the way, an unfruitful Christian is an oxymoron. That is never used in the Bible. There's no such idea in the Bible. So here we have a group, and they do better than groups one and two when it comes to the word. However, even though they have received the word, as it says there in the text, when something happens like worry or when they begin to consider the wealth of this world, or they allow the lust for other things to come in, suddenly you find out that their commitment to Christ was only a partial commitment, which, by the way, partial commitment equals no commitment. There's no such thing as being a partial Christian. You're either in or you're out. You're his or you're not. So like being partly in the family and partly out of the family. No, 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 no. You're either family or you're not. And you're either with Christ or you're not. And so he says, here they come, and they start off so well, but because they're listening to too many voices, and because they have their eyes on too many things, they don't endure, and they prove, verse 19, to be unfruitful. In other words, bottom line, this life is more important to them than the life to come. Stuff is more important to them than our Savior. They find pleasure in wealth more than Jesus. They find pleasure in their desires more than Jesus. Unless you think I'm being too hard, I'll just let Jesus pass verdict from John chapter 8 and verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Abide in the Word, you belong to Him. Do not abide in the Word. The Bible says you are unfruitful and give evidence that you don't belong to Him. This soil is not the hard-hearted type. It's not the superficial type. It is the distracted type. And if I had to say to you this evening which one of those three I think is more often prevalent in our churches among unbelievers who attend week after week, I think it's here. I think they're distracted. I think that there are other things that are more important to them than the ultimate thing. And therefore, as a result of that, there really is no true, genuine, bona fide commitment to the Lord Jesus. But that then leads us to the fourth soil. The soil of some hearts is fruitful. He says there in verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil, these are the ones who, number one, hear the word. Number two, they accept it. And number three, they bear fruit. And to what degree do they bear fruit? Oh, my goodness, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and really an unheard-of number, while some will even bear fruit a hundred-fold. He says, here's the word that, uh, and here's the soil where the word is so well received. They hear it, they accept it, and they bear fruit. Now, again, allowing the context to help us here, tribulation and persecution do not deter them. 
tribulation comes and, and persecution comes, but instead of it causing their faith to weaken, it causes their faith to grow strong. Uh, the worries and concerns uh, of this life, wealth, personal desires and cravings, they, they don't distract them. No, because their desire is for Jesus. Their craving is for Christ. They lust after their Lord, and He is so important. They treasure Him so greatly. These other things just pale in comparison. Now, don't miss what's going on here. They are not passive in hearing the Word. They are active in hearing the Word. To say it another way, they are aggressive in pursuing the Word. And because they are aggressive in pursuing the Word, it is allowed to take root. And then there is abundant growth. And note, God promises it, it will grow. Once more, let Jesus provide the commentary. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that one who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you reverse that, in me, you can do anything. And in me, you will bear much fruit. So, what's the conclusion of the matter? As I said when I began, Christianity is, if anything, a religion of the Word. And if it's a religion of the Word, it's also a religion of the ear. And so all of us on an ongoing basis should be asking ourselves the question, do I have ears to hear? Do I have spiritual ears that work correctly? When I hear the gospel and I hear the word of God, do I, uh, with great enthusiasm, tune it in? Or do I just kind of tune it out and go into a dull neutral that in essence is not neutral, but is actually in opposition to the word? Let me tell you something. It is dangerous to come to church. It's very dangerous to come to church, especially if it's a faithful Bible teaching church. In fact, I've said on a number of occasions, especially young people, if you've determined in your heart already that you're not going to obey the word, then let me make a suggestion to you. Don't come to church anymore. Just stay home because you're heaping upon yourself greater judgment and damnation. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. And the more of the word you have and reject, the greater will be your judgment when you stand before the great king and give an account for why you rejected his precious word in your life. And so I said it in my notes this way so that I would remember it, and I hope that you do as well. Be greedy for the word. Go after the word. Grab hold of the word, and when you get it, don't let it go. Like a starving beggar. Who has found bread, grab hold of it with all of your might, cherish it for the life-sustaining food that it is, and no matter what comes your way, do not let it go. Jesus says it so well. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God, by his grace and for his glory, give all of us really good hearing ears. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wisdom of this parable he calls, Lord, it encourages me. And it both provides as well a realistic assessment of how your kingdom is going to come and grow and uh, flourish unto the day of harvest. Lord, first of all, you have told us, go sow the word. Go sow the word. Sow, sow it everywhere. Sow it with everybody. We, we, first of all, have no ability 
to know the kind of soil that's in a heart. It's kind of like when they were sow, sowing the seed then. They, they put it on the ground and it, it would not know if it was going to, to bear fruit until it was plowed. And so, Lord, we don't need to worry about that. We just need to sow and sow and sow and sow and sow. Now, Lord, you've given us also a realistic assessment, and that is that some people will hear the word and immediately reject it. Others will hear the word and like it for a while, but once it gets tough, they walk away. And then others, Lord, uh, they take it and they seem at first to care about it, but then they compromise. And the things of this world, lust, worry, just pushes the word to the side. And the next thing you know, the word really has no place in their lives. And, Lord, we grieve over that, but that is the reality. But, Lord, you've also said this. If we sow the seed, there will be receptive soil that will take it in. And some of it will bear fruit 30, some 60, and some even 100-fold. You have promised that your word will not return void. So, Lord, we have a divine promise that you will honor your word and that you will bear fruit as we sow it. So help us, Lord, to have ears that hear. And help us, Lord, to be faithful to sow the word that we might be a part of growing your kingdom until that day when Jesus comes again. We ask and pray this in his name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. See you next week. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, We hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www dot s-e-b-t-s dot e-d-u we cover your prayers and trust that god will bless every good work you do for his glory thank you for joining us in our chapel services